Hi, everyone. It's your podcast host, Jim Andrews, here with a reminder that the Ticket Manager Partner Summit is back. We'll be getting together in person on October 17th this year at the Times Center in New York City. This is a free, invitation-only event where hundreds of business leaders across the world's most influential brands in sports, sponsorship, live events, and ticketing gather to make great connections and share valuable information. Approved attendees enjoy exclusive networking events, insightful panels, and exciting celebrity speakers, all for free. Are you interested in attending? Just go to ticketmanager.com for details on how to apply. access interview series, engaging leaders from across the sports marketing spectrum to identify and explore critical issues in the business of sports, entertainment, sponsorship, activation, ticketing, hospitality, and even more than that. I'm your host, Jim Andrews. Joining me on this episode is Elizabeth Lindsay, president of the brands and properties business for Wasserman. Now, it might be easier to name the brands and properties that she and Wasserman don't work with rather than the many that they do. And I'm sure some of those uh, those big names will come up during our discussion today. Elizabeth joined Wasserman in 2007 when it acquired OnSport. And in addition to running the brands and properties business, she also helps guide the agency's decision making around acquisition and international expansion, among other strategic initiatives. And she serves as a senior advisor to chairman and CEO. Casey Wasserman. She's also the senior leader overseeing The Collective, Wasserman's platform for raising the profile of and opportunities for women in sports, which is a real passion area for Elizabeth and one that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. Elizabeth, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I appreciate it. Well, I'd like to start off just by discussing kind of the current landscape for, for businesses like yours. You know, on the one hand, sports marketing and and all that that encompasses is a multi-billion dollar sector and it's growing. But on the other, it's relatively concentrated in terms of the major players. So it makes it a pretty competitive environment. What makes Wasserman unique within our space? Oh, wow. Uh, I think uh, the breadth of the sports and entertainment industry is actually limitless. And I think as Wasserman, what we've tried to do is mirror our business and its reach, uh, its impact, its diversification. I think we've tried to mirror the limitless possibilities that the industry itself offers with how we've built this business. So from a unique perspective, I think uh, the, the best thing I can say is how we've spent the last 20 years building this business to mirror that to reach every corner of the globe, to be as um, ubiquitous as the sports and entertainment landscape itself, and to keep laser focused on what I think makes us pretty special, which is, you know, as one of the, I think, if not the, one of the largest privately held companies left in our industry, we are big enough to be broad and far-reaching and have the tools and the resources and the people and the network and the access to to serve any client that comes our way. But we're still small enough and private to give boutique service to those who want to engage in this limitless possibility of sports and entertainment. 
one of the things that that I know about Wasserman uh, is that you, unlike other folks in, in in the business, don't actually sell sponsorships, partnerships. You don't represent your your property clients in that way. Is that correct? That is very correct. Awesome. And is that a that's a particular choice that you have made to to not do that? Is that is that right? Look, I, I, I take nothing against anyone who chooses to participate in the sales side of our business and represent third party properties. For Wasserman, it wasn't right. For us, we wanted to have a completely unencumbered agnostic perspective on the business. And we wanted to give advice that was trusted, that had nothing to do with the downstream implications of how much money that we were going to get or not get based on the advice that we gave. And the breadth of the buy side representation that we have, the number of brands that we represent in the industry, you know, with over 250 brands a year that we work with, you know, there's no way to sit on both sides of the table without presenting a conflict of interest and without giving those brands reasons to distrust the work or the recommendations that we were giving them. And we just quite frankly, weren't comfortable with that. You know, we get paid to consult with the brands, we get paid to help our properties, but we get paid no more or no less with how much or how little you sell your asset for. And that gives us a complete freedom to be completely honest and transparent with both buyer and seller on what an asset is worth in the marketplace. Well, we're talking about all of those, those, those brand clients, and that is, that is a large number. You know, one of the things that seems to be happening these days, there's just more and more what I would say are landmines for brands these days, especially those who are in that, that spotlight of, of major sports sponsorship. You've got geopolitical and all these social issues, and there's maybe an expectation for brands to, to take a stand. There's chatter on social media when these things kind of bubble up to the surface. What advice are you offering to clients who are trying to navigate their way through this pretty tricky landscape? It can be tricky. Absolutely. Uh, And there are two pieces of advice that I always give my clients. First of all, when you come to the table to negotiate for a partnership, you be the most prepared person sitting at that table. Know exactly what you're up against. Know exactly what's going to happen. Understand every single angle and be prepared for it. Nothing. No matter how crazy this industry can get, nothing beats good preparation. And then the second piece of advice I ripped straight from my 16-year-old son, which is at the end of the day, you do you. You do you. Where people get in trouble, where brands get in trouble, is not the brands that own who they are authentically. If you are that authentically invested in something and you do you really well with a laser focus, everything else falls in line. Everything. So it's where brands get a foul of that is when they step outside of lines. If I'm not a particularly political brand, but I choose to take a, a stance politically, that's going to bite me. If I'm not a brand who's ever had a strong history in supporting women and I decide to launch something on International Women's Day with nothing behind it, that's going to bite me. You've got to put in the work. you got to know who you are. You have to know who your audience is. And at the end of the day, you do you. Yeah. Something to be said for, for authenticity, right? Exactly. The next issue is maybe a little bit more prosaic, but but I think it's still critical. And that's sports and entertainment sponsors and, and, and the issue of how do they maintain relevance with fans to ensure that their mm-hmm. communications, their activations have the desired effect and, and achieve the, the, the results that they want. So I'd love to know with, with all of the activity that you're involved in and, and I know some of the seen some of the work that uh, your clients have been doing lately. What are you seeing in terms of how brands can be most yeah. effective in reaching today's consumers and improving the performance of their partnerships? Well, look, I'd start with that phrase you just said, reaching today's consumer. And I remind everybody that two very critical things. 
you know, for those who are sitting in the C-suite making decisions at corporate America, you're not always your own target demographic. So get that in your head. Like there's a lot of times where as human nature, it, it you lean into, well, oh, well, I would find this compelling, but you've got to ask yourself as, you know, a probably 40, 50 plus CMO or CEO type, are you reaching your own consumer demographic? And if you're not, you have to think about it. Are you, are you your own consumer demographic, I should say? And if you're not, and chances are you're not, uh, or at least not exclusively, then you have to listen to the consumer. In order to reach a consumer, you have to know who they are. You have to have studied that audience and spend a lot of time looking at the data and the numbers. But at the end of the day, you also have to just listen to them. It's shocking to me still to this day, I'll get in meetings where someone will ask me or someone will raise the question about what does your consumer want? And the answer that comes back is, well, I don't know. I haven't asked. Okay, well, there's a start. Ask, talk and listen more than you talk and whether or not it appeals to you personally, recognize and appreciate and respect that it does them. And that's how you stay true to reaching that audience in today's very cluttered marketplace. Now, you and I talked earlier and you mentioned to me that you believe it's time to part ways with some sacred cows in sports marketing. One that we we talked about was category exclusivity. And in in many ways, exclusivity has been been a linchpin and a key differentiator for sponsorship versus other forms of marketing. Mm -hmm. So why do you think it's no longer uh, as important as maybe it once was? Why do I take the radically unpopular position that it's a dying piece of our industry? Yes, I know I get yelled at about this from time to time. Well, Look, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I've been talking to some other people and, and and they would agree with you. And I think there are plenty of arguments for it, but yeah. I'm, I'm old school. So maybe I'm, I'm a little still, I still maybe need to be convinced. <laughs> well, you tell them all I had it first. No, at the end of the day, look, I think uh, I, I get it. I understand the concept of category exclusivity. At the end of the day, when the industry, industry started, you're being asked to spend substantial sums of money in order to procure these partnerships. Well, how did you protect that? You made sure you were the only brand that had the opportunity to do so. I get it. It has its time and place. But today's age, it had its time and place. And from time to time, it still does. But in today's reality, especially with how emerging technologies are uniting almost everything, things things that you would have never expected to be technologically based are now being delivered through all kinds of technical outlets, traditional technical outlets, but even into Web3 and the metaverse and everything that's coming, things that you would have never said were a tech-based category are being delivered through tech-based channels. And so especially with advent of things like that, what's happening is everything's merging, right? Like take, take something as simple as a cell phone. Is that cell phone, the handset? Is it the service? Is it the credit card that's in the wallet? Is it the apps? Is it the map? Is it, is it, is it, is it, there's 7 billion things on that cell phone. What categories do you protect? They, and so at the end of the day, it's almost easier to advise brands to quiet that noise And again, back to you, do you quiet the noise of what category you're trying to protect, forget trying to make the target audience have to use your products and switch instead into making them want to use the cachet and the entree and the channels that you have in that partnership and activate them broadly and fully with your brand ethos, give really engaging opportunities for consumers to, to, to want to use your product. And it would be a lot more impactful than forcing them to use your product. Let me play devil's advocate for just a second on that, because I, I agree with you, you know, 
there are so many things that brands can do carving out great mm-hmm. you know space within that 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 even if there's there are competitor brands that are that are you know next door they're not uh, you know they're not diminishing what, what you're mm-hmm. doing my, my my biggest concern is that if we don't have some form of exclusivity do we get mm-hmm. back to a stage where there's just a lot of clutter because if mm-hmm. we're having you know, multiple beer brands and multiple banks. Yep. How then do we say to the consumer, you should value this partnership? If you're a fan of yeah. the Yankees, the Blackhawks, whoever it is, you know, you should reward my brand for for the loyal for with your loyalty. Yeah. But if there's multiple brands, are we are we diluting that and making it just too confusing for the consumer? Well, to be fair, I'm not advocating for no exclusivity. I'm advocating for lack of category exclusivity. Where I tend to lean instead is platform exclusivity. What is it that you offer? Agnostic, irrelevant, irrespective of of your product category. What is it that you offer to the fan, to the spectator, to the viewer of a particular sport? And you can be exclusive in that respect. So it's a different type of exclusivity, but it's still allows for creativity around an ownership of an idea. And then, yes, it does rely on some of our our property partners in the industry to have a certain amount of discipline and not go crazy. (laughs) But I do believe that concept of complete and total clutter is a little bit of a thing of the past. I, I, you know, we we spend a lot of time working with, with properties as well around the world, rights holders, and I'm seeing a lot more of a trend towards quality over quantity. And uh, the cleanliness of how they're presenting their brand, because they're realizing that they are not just a platform for other brands, that they themselves are a brand and that they've got to protect that as well. So I think those two things married together will guard against what you're talking about. I love that. And I, I really, yeah, I, I appreciate that and, and and really like that idea of platform exclusivity makes makes perfect sense. So last question for you. I mentioned before that you've been just a, a huge and enthusiastic advocate for, for women's sports as well as for women working in sports. A loud mouth, one would say. <laughs> Your words, not mine, but but hey, sometimes that's what's required, right? Especially in, in, in these kinds of circumstances. There's been some discussion recently around kind of the marketing of women's sports, Mm -hmm. uh, two brands and and partnerships there, and whether it's wise to kind of position partnering with women's sports as kind of the right thing to do Mm -hmm. versus selling it solely on the merits of, hey, these these sports and and these athletes bring tremendous audience numbers and and loyalty and they can deliver the business results that that you're looking for. Is there a danger that you, if, you, if we position women's sports a, a, as a cause and that right thing to do, that maybe that's something where brands would then kind of move on to the next important issue, kind of the next flavor of the month, if you will? Well, look, I maintain that you can do good and do good business at the same time. And investing in women, um, whether they be women um, fans, women spectators, women consumers, w- women prospects, women employees, I think investing in women is both. It's both right and right for business. And I think sometimes the industry needs a bit of a kickstart to get people on that path. That's where the, it's the right thing to do comes in. But I think once they're on that path, they'll realize incredibly quickly that it's right for business as well. It's no secret that women control the majority, the vast, vast majority of the spending wallet of the average American household. What's a little bit of a secret that I wish the world knew a little bit more of is you think it's bad now, you give it about five years. If you want to look at 
the power of the consumer and the wallet, you look no further than Gen Z women. Like the the women my age, the millennials, those those are around me, look, we we control a lot of it. When the Gen Z women come up, they're going to control about damn near all of it. And so you better pay attention to that audience. So today, right here, right now, it might be the right thing to do. Five years from now, when they are controlling literally 90 plus percent of the wallet, damn well be right for business. So it is both. I do believe that there's a quality quantity argument that goes into a place as well. A lot of times the industry tries to benchmark women's sports in terms of sheer quantity of eyeballs. Well, that becomes a chicken and an egg thing. Does it have the, does it not have the eyeballs because it's not getting the coverage or is it not getting the coverage because it doesn't have the eyeballs at some point you need to address the chicken and the egg in that equation. My argument always is if you want to change who gets through the gate, you need to change the gatekeeper. And so I'm a big advocate for more women making the editorial decisions to put more women's sports on TV, because I then then think some of this, this problem will resolve itself. But at the end of the day, the, the advocacy you get from your consumers, the fandom you get from the audiences, the, the spending you get from your prospects, the attention, the advocacy, the avidity, the appreciation that will come for your brand if you are a sponsor of women's sports all speaks for itself and enables to deliver against both those objectives of doing good and doing good business at the same time. There are so many other areas I could delve into with you, but maybe we'll save that for, for another time. Part two. <laughs> exactly. Always, always a part two. Leave them, leave them <laughs> wanting more. But uh, I really, I, I appreciate talking to, to smart and thoughtful people. And, and I think you've given us a lot to, uh, to think about and, and shared some great insights. So just want to say thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. And on behalf of everyone at Ticket Manager, thank all of you for watching and listening. And please join us again for the next episode in the All Access Interview Series.